don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 52, and today we are uh, forsaking all other gods in favor of something that we think is uh, more important at the moment. We, we'd originally plan to do something else... Um, but with the the passing of the the late great John Prine, we've decided to instead spend this episode talking about his 1971 debut album, self-titled, I self-titled, believe, right? Yeah, and this is a man who had a career that spanned a few decades, released I think 18 studio albums, and he, you know, he came in with a bang, and this is. You know, I, I don't want to say like he released his best material on this album because I think that's untrue. But these are the songs that I think he's most well known for. And they still hold up incredibly well uh, right now in 2020. I remember discovering this album at around the same time I discovered the fiction of Raymond Carver. And I was at work listening to this album on my little uh, like work portable stereo thing. And I, I just listened to it from, from beginning to end. And this album feels like a book of short stories. It feels like a, like a Raymond Carver, uh, collection because while there's, you know, different, um, you know, different, different themes, obviously. And, slightly different uh, tones and feelings that these songs give you. There's, there's something cohesive about it. Uh, uh, Like it's a, it's a new perspective in a way or a new uh, style of song where it, uh, it, it's like I was hearing this sort of new voice, the the way reading Raymond Carver for the first time, like, Oh, this is, this is something new. Um, So to me, this this album is a, a very cohesive sort of singular sort of thing. Yeah, he's definitely one of those songwriters, uh, like you're saying, that his songs are pretty much little stories and they have a lot of depth and there's a lot going on within them, even though they're, you know, three or four minutes long, some of them even shorter. I'm just looking at like the track listing and some of the times on these songs. Uh, so like Spanish pipe dream, two minutes and 37 seconds, mm-hmm. but it's a perfect, you know, two minutes and 37 seconds. Yeah. Flashback blues is under three, six o'clock news, quiet man, your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. All under three minutes. Yeah. And, and so what we're thinking we'll do is just sort of go through the track listing and talk about, I don't know, whatever comes up with those songs. Because this is an album sure. that's like, it's released in 1971, but I, the, its attitude, even though you think of like John Prine as like, you know, nice old kind of like country folk singer, these songs have a lot of punch and a lot of bite to them and are in some yeah. cases extremely political um, in a way that you might not expect. We, we were talking before we started recording about... Uh, his later album Fair and Square and how he's got uh, at least one song on there that's critical of what was then the current uh, Bush administration. Um, 
the, yeah, the, the some humans ain't human. Yeah, and how you know he he kind of shocked some of his fans. Well, well, I don't understand how that could happen if they've heard his debut album. Right, right. Uh, the line in question, and and I should say, uh, fair and square is the album. Uh, is the first John Prine album I ever heard. And that song, Some Humans Ain't Human, is the one, and this line that we're talking about, is the one that sort of made my ears perk up and I actually started listening to John Prine uh, as opposed to just sort of listening, knowing knowing who he was and, and that sort of thing. Um, but the line, In Some Humans Ain't Human, it, which is a long song, uh, is... Have you ever noticed when you're feeling really good, there's always a pigeon that'll come and shit on your hood and you're feeling your freedom and the world's off your back. Some cowboy from Texas starts his own war in Iraq. Some humans ain't human, uh, which is just so overtly. And I think that album came out in 2003. So overtly political uh, that I was like, God damn, it is nice to hear someone who sounds like this, you know, sounds like a, like you're saying a kind of a typical country music, you know, country music singer say that, uh, that was a, that was a big moment for me. Not, not just in my appreciation of John Prine, but just, it's, it's so nice to have those thoughts. You know, you can probably relate to this growing up in the South and, you know, being kind of, uh, enveloped in this very red state, um, overwhelmingly red state. And then to have someone come along and like we're saying, sound like everyone else, but say something that is essentially a fuck you to everyone else is very satisfying and very necessary. Um, and, and I think this, you, you know, John Prine came up on this podcast early i believe when we talked about mother mm -hmm. uh darren aronofsky's mother because we were talking about audience and how where that movie mother fails is where john prine's music or his like uh commentary in his music succeeds because he puts it in the uh in sort of a uh a packaging that will make people listen to it. Um, it's not, it's not an attack on the people listening to it, but it's, he knows that it is counter to what they believe. Whereas, you know, Aronofsky's movie is just like, fuck you, you're wrong. Uh, here's the truth. Uh, it's, it's sort of a rant. Uh, and, and John Prine's style is, is much more uh, deliberate and thoughtful and uh, and therefore effective I, I believe is kind of how we talked about it yeah and especially thinking about things like uh you know post 9-11 and um you know the war against terror and all that stuff it was one thing to have you know these punk bands from california or where, wherever they're from um, writing these anti-Bush administration songs. It's like, yeah, of course, that's just how, that's what they should be doing right now. Um, but like you're saying, to have a, an artist like Prine or even like, um, I can't remember her name, but the one of the Dixie Chicks who came out and sort of 
Yeah. Uh, and they got, you know, blackballed for a long time because of that. Um, but yeah, it's always comforting to see someone who uh, seems to believe kind of how you believe, sort of think and see things the way you do when you're in a sea of people who, who do not. Um, and it, and it also kind of redeems the art form. You know, we're so used to hearing country songs that sound like these songs, just perpetuating bullshit stereotypes and being like, you know, nationalistic and, and racist and xenophobic, uh, you know, kind of Toby Keith bullshit. And yeah, it's pandering and and, pandering as Bo Burnham would say. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's important. Like I, it's, I feel the way about John Prine in, in a similar way to I feel that I feel towards, uh, like when I discovered Faulkner where it's, you know, you, there's, there's almost like a, a sort of cultural embarrassment growing up in the South when you're young, because you, you both, you swallow this lie that like the real sort of culture is happening elsewhere. You know, it's happening in New York, it's happening in, uh, Los Angeles, it's happening in Europe. Um, but when you, you know, uh, encounter these real serious works of art that are, you know, kind of come from the South or in Faulkner's case, like about the South, um, and, and put this particular locate locations, these particular locations you're familiar with onto this mythological scale. It's like this, like redemptive experience, like you live in the real world, um, so I, I cannot overstate the importance of of just what uh, the sort of space John Prine's uh, music occupies in my thinking about sort of my place uh, in the South. Yeah, and, and even then you can kind of f- fall into that that sort of booby trap of uh, blind sort of pride and sort of. Um, advocating for the South kind of no matter what. And a lot of people do that, right? They, and you have like the garden and gun crowd or, uh, in, in Kentucky, you have, uh, the company Kentucky for Kentucky that makes all the shirts that just say y'all and, yeah. and stuff like that. And that's what, uh, like the, the podcast Trillbilly workers party to call it the, the y'all star culture. <laughs> um, and that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, that's, that's, fine as long as you don't take it too seriously but what with an artist like you know Faulkner or John Prine uh just funny to put them in the same box but you know why not um they're they're viewing that culture uh not just in a sense where they're saying you know these are real people and real stories that matter and have weight and have pathos and all that sort of stuff but being critical of them at the same time and saying it's not that they're just automatically okay because I'm from this place like I'm going to deconstruct them and look at them and sort of get to the heart of them. Yeah. It's about, it's about taking, taking the place seriously, not about worshiping it or, or, um, or neglecting it, you know, in some way dismissing it. Uh, it's about taking it seriously. Yeah. And um, that can be good or bad. Yeah. And you know, it's more or less what he's doing. So I, I guess, you know, we can just sort of go ahead and jump in. Um, and start off with, uh, illegal smile, which is <laughs> when this, this is a song that's like, I, I've heard a lot and everyone, 
I know that knows John Prine is a big fan of the song because a lot of people I know that like John Prine are into weed. Uh, mm. So, uh, but you know, to have this sort of pro, it, it's more than that, but like a pro marijuana use song, you know, in 71 is, is not, you know, the most unique thing in the world, but coming from, again, someone like John Prine with the kind of image that he had. I mean, you look at the the cover of the album and they like purposefully put him on these hay bells sitting there, <laughs> yeah. right? Because they, they, they sort of knew what they were trying to market, even though he's not, you know, he's from Illinois, you know, right. his, his parents are from Muhlenberg County, Kentucky that we'll talk about later. But um, to see it coming from there, like this is something that is sort of unheard of until like later on when Willie Nelson is like, oh, by the way, I've been a huge pothead my whole life. Mm-hmm. Well, the the line that sticks out to me in this song um, as as maybe a little bit cheeky or snarky is uh, when he says, uh, ah, but fortunately, I have the key to escape reality. Um, and so like the, the sound of the song, like you're saying, is is very pro, you know, sounds very pro uh, legalization of marijuana or pro smoking marijuana. And, and I definitely think that that is mostly true, but I think it's a little bit, I just think it's a little bit snarky because when has escape reality, uh, you know, been used as like a, uh, with a positive connotation. And so, and so we're forced to sort of think why, why do they want to escape reality? You know what's going on. Uh, Jensi and I googled. We were listening to this record and reading these lyrics, and we googled Hoffman. I didn't understand who he was referring to when he says at the end of the song, "Well, I went to court, and the judge's name was Hoffman," and it's a reference to Julius Hoffman, who was the judge in the trial of the Chicago Seven. You know about this? Yeah, I was just looking at that. Yeah, it's uh, – uh, do you have it pulled up? Mm-hmm. Talk about that because it's fucking crazy. Well, uh, it has a couple of references here. He, he's talking about Julius Hoffman. One of the Chicago Seven uh, was uh, Abby Hoffman as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this great quote they have from Abby Hoffman where it says, all you kiddies remember to lay off the needle drugs. The only dope we're shooting is Richard Nixon. <laughs> um, but – all the, the Chicago seven were acquitted and the judge for that case was Julius Hoffman who, you know, no relation. Um, but acquitting them of, you know, um, conspiring to cause disruption and violence outside of the democratic national convention in Chicago mm-hmm. in 68. Yeah. But apparently, uh, he had, uh, ordered one of the, one of the seven, uh, to like be bound and gagged in the courtroom. It was like in contempt of court. It was, it's, if you keep reading into that story, it just gets crazier and crazier. And apparently there's a movie in the works written by uh, Aaron Sorkin about mm. the trial. Um, so the, <laughs> with, a, with a ton of famous people. I'll say like, so the, the, the gag dude will have six pages of a monologue that he'll deliver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it'll it'll be very uh, erudite and overly articulate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and so and sort of. Hello, can you still hear me? 
Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, I heard a, a, a click and I was like, oh no. Um, so yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the song, it does have that sort of tinge of like, you know, if you smoke weed, you're not hurting anyone, that sort of thing. But it also does kind of have that uh, bringing in some heavier sort of things. And also this, this kind of double meaning almost of the, the key to escape reality. Well, why do you want to escape reality? Why is reality worth escaping? And are you really escaping it? That sort of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a clever song, even though I feel like a lot of potheads just look at it as like, Hey man, don't hassle me. Yeah. And it's also, I'd say one of the major themes of this whole album is boredom. And it seems like, um, it's like malaise. one of the reasons, yeah, there's this like malaise that he's talking about. And he says, uh, chase a rainbow down a one way street dead end. And all my friends turned out to be insurance salesmen. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's, it's this, uh, refuge, uh, you know, smoking, smoking weed is this refuge that this guy's like forced to, uh, resort to. Um, uh, and you know, if John Prine hadn't written, you know, about 500 songs or whatever he's written, all of which or most of which are like, you know, pretty meaningful and clever. There's very few that are just like fuck around songs. I, w- I probably wouldn't think twice about these lyrics, you know, but because he's John Prine, you have to uh, assu- assume that there's more than meets the eye. Assume there's more than meets the ear in the in the first listen, you know. Yeah. And uh, something I did instead of just listening to the album again, uh, I thought it would be better or maybe more insightful to go and watch live performances of all the songs mm-hmm. or all the ones that I could find that were a, a good enough quality. Did you watch that uh, early Sam Stone I sent you? Yeah, that was awesome. And yeah, He I, was like 24. I found a similar era video of him performing uh, Illegal Smile. And I don't know where, where it, it kind of almost looked like the uh, Austin city Limits stage, but I don't know if that's what it was or not. Um, but it, it was, it was great because he's kind of interacting with the crowd a little bit. And you know, this song, like a lot of his songs are, are is funny. Like in mm-hmm. the, the first verse, he's got that line about the, the bowl of oatmeal tried to stare me down and won. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when he hits those, those lines, you know, the, the crowd laughs. And then after the chorus, they sort of like clap and like laugh a little cause they're, they're sort of in on the joke. Right. Um, so to see him, you know, perform, it was, I think really, I don't helps you see sort of more of who he was. He was a powerful performer, even when he's doing something like a legal smile, that's maybe not, you know, not the most serious track that we're going to be talking about, but the subject matter is, you know, important. It's like, well, why do you, why do you have this malaise? You know, why does reality seem worth escaping? Why are you yeah, so that, bored all day? And that, that tension I think we're picking up on between the goofy and the serious is contained in that title illegal smile. Yeah. And you know, he does that sort of uh, down home absurdity really well, like probably better than anyone else has ever done it. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything else you want to say about that song? I don't think so. I would encourage people to look up the Chicago seven and, and, and into, uh, judge Julius Hoffman. It's a, it's an intriguing story to say the least. 
you know, look out for that movie. If movies are a thing we make anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> what's going to be the first movie to come out that is uh, social distanced where like all the actors are six feet away from each other. I, I, there was uh what was it like Ariana Grande or somebody like her and a few of her friends like reenacted Forrest Gump or something. I forget what, what happened. Um, I'm probably like mixing up names and what movie they did, but they did like a sort of like Saturday night live did that social distancing version of the show. Mm, I missed it. I don't think you missed much. So I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> so a uh, Spanish pipe dream a song. Mm-hmm. I'm really fond of, and it's one of, you know, this album is sort of a lot of it's kind of downbeat sort of slower songs. Spanish pipe dream is just sort of like a musically very kind of upbeat sort of feel good kind of song and mm-hmm. has some themes that we've talked about, I think quite a bit uh, in previous episodes, specifically thinking about the chorus. You just blow up your TV, throw away your paper, go to the country, build you a home. Um, Plant a little garden, eat a lot of peaches, try and find Jesus on your own. Yeah. Um, and then later, you know, it changes the, does that great thing that good songwriters do where he switches around the words in the chorus a little bit of, we went to the, or we blew up our TV. Yeah. That, that sort just of thing. changes it to, to past tense. Yeah. Um, but you know, pretty it switches to the, what was it? I guess he starts in the imperative. Yeah. I think, I think that's what yeah. you'd call that. Um, yeah. And so, you know, pretty, pretty good advice, I think, uh, for the time. But it's funny that looking at the things that he recommends, like blow up your TV. Yeah. Fair enough. Throw away your paper. Makes me think like, is he talking about money? Is he talking about like burn your social security card? <laughs> like get rid of everything. I- to me, I thought he was talking about the newspaper. It could be it, right? But I'm, I'm going like even farther to like sovereign citizen territory. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, there there are several mentions, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or maybe not just on this album, but in his entire collection of uh, being bothered by the news, you know. Oh, yeah. There's a reference in that song, The Lonesome Friends of Science, off his last album. Um, there's a song on this album called Six O'Clock News. Um, yeah. So he's, uh, he, you can tell, you can, you know, it's, it's strange. You can tell he is uh, up on the news, like he watches the news or reads the news, obviously, because he's politically aware. But you also, you know, pick up on this uh, aversion to it and the despair it induces in, in a lot of his songs. Yeah. Um, makes sense, right? The news only wants to report the bad stuff because that's what gets the ratings. Either that or like puppies. Um, well, it's, it's essentially, the chorus is essentially telling people to live your life outside of institutions you know mm-hmm. uh, and think about yeah. you know where it begins right it begins you know she was a level-headed dancer and then he was a soldier mm-hmm. right so um 
And, and you know, this uh, looking at genius, like the lyrics on genius.com and it mentions, you know, a lot of, you know, during the Vietnam war, if you didn't want to serve, you'd go to Canada. Right. <laughs> um, so thinking of, you know, being a soldier on the way to Montreal, like deserting or not even deserting, but, you know, avoiding the draft or whatever draft dodging as it would come mm-hmm. to be known. Um, pretty, you know, pretty political statement. It's, and it's our starting point for the song, right? So it's not just escaping from this really complicated and kind of shitty world, but like it, it's sort of amplified by the fact of, of being a, a soldier mm-hmm. uh, and the Vietnam war is sort of this, you know, through line that connects a lot of these songs, which makes yeah. sense. Cause you know, 71 is right in the, the heart of it. And he was John Prine's a veteran. Correct. I, I believe so. I, I believe he is. Maybe. I'd have to look. Um, Certainly a yes. veteran of the uh, post office. He was a mailman for five years and was drafted during v- Vietnam, but he served in Germany. So he didn't actually have to fight. He wasn't in the shit. No, he was not in the shit. Um, so, and this song has one of my favorite John Prine lines, which is, uh, for I knew that topless lady had something up her sleeve. <laughs> yeah. That's just, yep, that, that is, uh, Prinean. Oh yeah. It, it's funny, but it's also like just really clever. Yeah. Uh, it fits the song perfectly. There's maybe one of my favorite lines of his is on his, uh, album from the eighties, I believe called lost dogs and mixed blessings. Uh, a song called Quit Hollering at Me. It's about advertising. And uh, he says, I don't want to buy no soap from some washed up movie star. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. And that I love that last line of the, the chorus, try to find Jesus on your own. And at the end, his children, they all found Jesus on their <clears throat> yeah. own. It's it's a little uh, Captain Fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Um, it Maybe a little bit more good natured, or like <clears throat> less less academic. I would say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, definitely has that sort of feeling of prepare your children in the right ways, and then let them go forward and sort of discover the world and interpret it on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know, I don't have any children. I have a dog. <clears throat> I'd like to think I've prepared him for the world. Yeah. And, and it seems like prepare them for the world outside, let, you know, let them grow up outside of the reach and influence of these harmful institutions, uh, like, you know, the global media and, industrial agriculture and all, you know, all these things are sort of just beneath the surface when he says, blow up your TV, uh, start, start a garden. Um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause that is sort of a <clears throat> slow move or slow, slow move, slow food, uh, anti, you know, hyper processed industrial food kind of statement, you know, and it's a one line in the chorus, but you know, it, it says a lot kind of implies mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, that, it's a great song. And, and like we said, it's packaged in this way that you can just sort of tap your foot to it. And uh, I recommend uh, there's a great album that, of just uh, 
John Prime covers a lot of great artists covering his songs. Broken Hearts and Dirty Windows, I think it's called. Yeah, the Aether uh, Brothers. The Aether Brothers cover Spanish Pipe Dream. And yeah. It's really cool. I saw them uh, live once upon a time, and they played it. And yeah, they. I mean, they're they're good for that sort of song. Uh, they have some others that are yeah, you know, yeah, it's, some of their it's own. Toe tapper. Yeah, some of their their slower stuff, maybe not so much, but they're good for that sort of like hoot nanny, raise a little hell kind of song. Um, I was at a I was at a, a music festival in 2009, I believe, when the Avett Brothers were kind of they were popular, but not like huge like they are now, and it was they were still kind of a kind of a hot ticket. And I was at this uh, music festival in or, uh, Washington State at the Gorge, and I uh, had an illegal smile. I took a took a hit of Eric's medicinal marijuana, and I slept in my tent through the Avett Brothers concert and missed them forever. I like that. That's a good story. <laughs> Eric and his goddamn medicinal marijuana. God damn it, Eric. Um, and also, this is unrelated, but uh, Seth Avett, the the taller of the Avett brothers, um, it, I, I like him just sort of as a musician. And at one point, I think he did like a little album of uh, Elliot Smith covers. Or, mm. or he plays a lot of Elliot Smith covers. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass here. But I, I think that's something that exists out there. Um, oh yeah, yeah. There's a. It was with Jessica he's Lee got Mayfield. A, a solo album. Okay. He's got a solo album where it, I think it's just called Seth Avett as Darling, and it's just like really unproduced. You know, you can tell it's just like he just hit record at home, and uh, there's no, you know, there's no production value at all. But it's it's pretty cool. And the songwriting is, is, uh, unique and hard to forget. There's, there's three or four songs that are really good. Um, anyway, check out the Avery brothers cover of Spanish pipe dream. And that whole album, um, I forgot it's called something in dirty windows, dirty window, broken hearts and dirty windows, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Pretty solid all around. Um, so, I guess moving on, talk about uh, Hello in there. One of the the sad, sadder, slower songs on the album. Yeah. Did uh, you did you happen to see uh, Brandy Carlisle play this uh, on uh, Colbert's show or sort of his show, whatever we call it now when they do it from home? Uh, no, I did not. Yeah, she it's it's a pretty moving performance just in the fact that she explains why she chose it and you know how much kind of ageism is is rampant right now with uh, the coronavirus um, going on and and you know affecting older people disproportionately um, and you know, obviously this is a song about the the loneliness of the elderly. So it's a another cover I would recommend. Cool. 
Yeah. I mean, there's no shortage of, of great John Prine covers, right? Because there's not a shortage of yeah. great John Prine songs. Uh, yeah. But this is another one that I watched a live performance of, and it was kind of, it wasn't unusual, but it was a full band performance, and he was playing an electric guitar, which was a little, I don't know that I'd ever seen that before. Um, hmm. But, you know, it's a, a good version, um, very sort of like nuanced. But yeah, the, the song about the loneliness of, of aging, of, of growing old, and your children leave you, and maybe your spouse you know, leaves you or dies or something and, and sort of reflecting back on life. And again, again, you just get this terrifying sense of boredom. Yes. It's every other song in this album. It's just like how boring life can be. Uh, one, <laughs> funny, one line <laughs> that just say what? It's just funny that like, you think, well, no one's going to want to hear a song about how bored you are. And he's written like a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's from this like existential perspective, you yeah. know, it's not like, it's not just regular old boredom. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the line in the first verse that just tears my fucking heart out is we lost Davy in the Korean war. I still don't know what for, don't matter anymore. Yeah. Uh, like that sort of, uh, that sort of sense of, you get the sense that this, this man, uh, used to be very broken hearted about this thing and, and irate and, and full of rage and, and just to hear him say, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. Why? Uh, you know, the reasons for the war, what matters is that he's dead. It's just, John Prine has a way of, of saying, uh, really big things in a, in, you know, in a couplet, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, for sure. And just the way that the, the chorus is, is structured is just, you know, so kind of like simple and beautiful. And that's sort of like, when I think of John Prine's song, I think the it's worded and sort of organized in a very simple way, very basic language, but it's perfectly arranged. Um, yeah, and so, it's, and there's no there's no structural challenge. It's it's always like verse one chorus, verse two chorus. Yeah, it's a that you old know, phrase you hear about like th- that phrase you hear of like there's not an ounce of fat on that song. Like everything's in place. Yeah, everything's sort of yeah. as it needs to be. Um, but you know, saying the, the chorus of old trees just grow stronger, old rivers grow wild, wilder every day. Old people just grow lonesome. Um, it's just, I don't know, Mm -hmm. beautiful sentiment. Well, and it also, I never really thought about it this way. It, It kind of places human beings in, uh, you know, outside of nature in a way, Mm uh, like, the the human heart is not um you know does not really adapt it doesn't the 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 way a tree grows stronger and a river grows wilder uh that is that is not uh that pattern is not the same for uh for a human being aging in the world and so you you kind of feel this remove uh and and again this this alienation um, so yeah, uh, 
say. It's just this is just going to be me uh, heaping like sheepish praise on him all night because I love everything. Yeah, yeah, rightfully so. And, and it's it's strange, like just thinking about like the reality of this song. And what I mean by that is here's a guy on his first studio album writes and records a song about how we should think about old people more. Like if you boil it down, that's kind of what it is. Right. And not only is it like successful, but now it's like etched in American music history. This is like this great song that, you know, Brandy Carlisle is covering on, on the late show or whatever. Um, in 2020 in 2020 yeah yeah. and just to think about like what kind of the kind of accomplishment that is is just sort of like amazing to me and it's like really admirable and to have this final verse is basically like if you see an old lonely person like say hi (laughs) you know be be nice to them ask them how they're doing um yeah let me uh let's take let's take a brief sort of intermission here i want to read a few paragraphs here this is on the back of the record the vinyl record it is uh just a sort of statement uh written and signed by chris christopherson also a you know well-known songwriter also whistler in the lead (laughs) and uh and this is just like i said it's on the back of the john prine album and it's just a a little uh story written by chris christopherson about discovering John Prine. And here it goes. John Prine caught us by surprise in the late night morning letdown after our last show in Chicago. Steve Goodman, who'd shared the bill with us that week, asked us to go to Old Town to listen to a friend he said we had to hear. And since Steve had knocked us out all week with his own songs, we obliged. It was too damned late, and we had an early wake-up ahead of us, and by the time we got there, Old Town was nothing but empty streets and dark windows, and the club was closing. But the owner let us come in, pulled some chairs off a couple of tables, and John unpacked his guitar and got back up to sing. There are few things as depressing to look at as a bunch of chairs upside down on the tables of an empty old tavern, and there was that awkward moment, us sitting there like, okay, kid, show us what you got. And him standing up there alone, looking down at his guitar like, what the hell are we doing here, buddy? Then he started singing. And by the end of the first line, we knew we were hearing something else. It must have been like stumbling onto Dylan when he first busted onto the village scene. In fact, El, uh, in fact, Al Aronowitz said the same thing a few weeks later after hearing John do a guest set at the bitter end. One of those rare, great times when it all seems worth it like when the vision would rise upon Blake's, quote, weary eyes, even in this dungeon and this iron mill, quote. He sang about a dozen songs and had to do a dozen more before it was over, unlike anything I'd heard before. Sam Stone, Donald and Lydia, the one about the old folks, 24 years old and writes like he's 220. I don't know where he comes from, but I've got a good idea where he's going. We went away believers, reminded how goddamned good it feels to be turned on by a real creative imagination. Chris Christopherson. High praise. Writes like he's 220. <laughs> yeah, I, I was reading the comments on one YouTube performance of John Prine, and someone attributed that quote to Johnny Cash. 
Yeah, like everybody, that's what you sort of find if you read about John Prine at all. It's like all these greats looked at him as sort of like, that's the guy. Like if you want to write a good song, study what John Prine did. And, uh, you know, Bob Dylan was a fan. Uh, His favorite song I read somewhere was Lake Marie off of uh, Lost Dogs and Nick's Blessings, which is a fucking weird song and a great song. (laughs) And it's maybe the best it's one of the best songs in the world to drive to. Like if you're ever on a road trip again, if those are allowed in the future, uh, listen to that album and crank that song up when you're driving. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. So, um, well, I guess you mentioned or Christofferson mentioned it. We can move on to, uh, talking about Sam stone which is one of yeah. his better known songs. Uh, like if, if people aren't really familiar with John Prine, they probably at least kind of know Sam stone. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, thinking about the, the subject matter. Yeah. Of, it's uh, it. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's, it's the one that's just impossible to ignore. It's kind of uh, overt political implications there's a hole in daddy's arm where all our money goes is hard to ignore. Yeah. Um, and that's again, like a perfect line <laughs> for the song. It's the first line of the chorus, right? Uh, it's just and it, and it encapsulates so much. You get this idea of like addiction and like letting your family down. And the fact that, the kids are saying it right. Like the whole point of the chorus is that the, this is the children's sort of interpretation of what they're seeing with their father. Um, do you, do you know what I had to Google it? It's, I was interested to find out what the phrase little pictures have big ears. Yeah. It's because children hear everything, right? Yeah. I had never heard that before. Yeah. It's a, like I heard him explain that once in an interview, I think. And uh, I didn't really, I had never heard it. I don't think it's like a super common. He said it was like a common like country saying. I'm not very familiar with it, but I've only heard it in the song, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, I, I found it was like defined in some sort of like idiom dictionary online. Um, <laughs> a reference to like, like beverage pitchers. The handles kind of look like human ears, the way they're shaped on the side of the pitcher. Yeah. Uh, but it's just meant to, like you said, to to mean uh, um, sort of now we say earmuffs. Um, that's yeah. sort of what yeah. the adults would say. Little pitchers have big ears. We don't want the little ones to hear everything we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and just, God, like this chorus is like perfect all, all the way around. But, you know, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Like, and I, it, it's uh, crucial that he says and because he wants you to know that it's the kids saying that. Yes. He says uh, there's a hole in daddy's arm. So, it's, you know, it's daddy. So we know it's from the child's perspective where all the money goes. And Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Uh, and you just you just that just explains so much this disenchanted world. And, and another line that's fucking great is in the last or the second to last verse. He says, um, eased his mind in the hours that he chose while the kids ran around wearing other people's clothes. Yeah. I love that part. 
because uh, all the money goes in his arm, right? Um, right. And then at the very end, right? He they they wrap it back around it, because it's the story of Sam Stone is is bookended with mentions of the war, right? And and he does this really clever thing in the first verse. Um, where he says Sam Stone came home to his wife and family after serving in the conflict overseas. And he doesn't say from serving in Vietnam or serving, he doesn't make that direct connection, but at the same time knows like that's where your mind is going to go. And also it can make this song like more unfortunately kind of timeless. Uh, this could be about, you know, Sam Stone could have fought in, you know, any war. Well, he's also using the softest language imaginable, I think, like, ironically. Yeah. Like, sort of like the, the, the conflict of overseas. You mean the Vietnam War? Like, it was it was quite a bit more than a conflict, you know? Yeah. Or, like, calling um, the Korean War a police but, action. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, he says it in the softest way possible. It reminds me of that George Carlin bit about soft language, you know, how a bureaucratic society, you know, messes with the language. The toilet, um, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's to, uh, you know, to obscure the, the reality, the, the harsh reality of it. I mean, you know, it's just reading, uh, like I was mentioning, I, I finished reading 1984. And one of the most interesting parts of that book is the appendix at the end uh, there's like another chapter about newspeak, like the language that the totalitarian regime is implementing in Oceana. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that they're doing is sort of eliminating the, uh, the capacity for nuance in language. Uh, and, and sort of disarming language. Um, so, so when I hear the song and I hear conflict overseas, it, I hear people are talking about this in the softest way possible because they don't want to acknowledge the reality, but that reality will assert itself in things like drug addiction, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, uh, Orwell wrote the, that famous essay politics in the English language, Mm-hmm. which gets taught in English 101 all the time. I've taught it myself a few times, not for a while. Um, but yeah, he was, he was one of those great sort of recognizers and explainers of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, I think definitely what's, what's going on here. And it's just sort of a really clever way of, of opening the story. And then, like I said, it's, it's bookended with the, the last part of the, the third verse. So there's a, you know, life has, had lost its fun. There's nothing to be done but trade his house that he bought on the GI Bill, which again is sort of grounding it in, you know, the real world GI Bill uh, for a flag draped mm-hmm. casket on a local hero's hill. Mm. Uh, and again, sort of making it, it's, it's sort of general but specific at the same time. Yeah, here's, here's where your heroes go. Yeah, uh, or end up. Do you know uh you know Dave Van Ronk, right? Sort of the inspiration I, for Inside Lewin Davis. No, I did not. I don't know about him. Oh yeah, well you know when um in Inside Lewin Davis when they're driving in the car and he plays that uh Green Green Rocky Road song. 
Mm, okay. That's a that's a date. Well, I think it might be like an old folk song, but Dave Van Ronk recorded it. Uh, and if you there's an album called Inside Dave Van Ronk, and it's sort of the same thing. But mm. he he wrote a anti-war song uh, called Luang Prabang, which is a a city in in Laos. And hmm. uh, I think for a while, my favorite anti-Vietnam War song was probably either fortunate son or sam stone um mm-hmm. but but now it's because i hadn't heard it until recently because i'm an idiot but luang probang is probably my favorite you should listen to it after this <laughs> i will yeah yeah i love a good anti-war song like there's some bad ones uh and there's some great ones i mean i don't think any of them are are have bad intentions but um one of my favorite anti-war songs is Backwoods Nation by David Bazan. Do you know Do you know that song? I do not. I'm not surprised you do, but I do. Not. Yeah, it, it was on his first uh, album, or I guess the EP, uh, uh, when after he went solo, and it is, you know, it's written in the midst of the Bush catastrophe, and it's fucking hardcore. Um, but yeah, Sam Stone a a great anti-war song and 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 like you said it has a sort of universality to it um and is certainly um relevant today in the midst of among so many other catastrophes the uh, opioid crisis um so Un, it, it's very unfortunate that a uh, a song about uh, drug addiction is uh, perennially relevant. Yes, absolutely. Um, so let's see, Sam Stone, and then we come to Paradise. Which again, he's he's dealing with a lot of big issues, specifically. Uh, when it, when we get to the chorus, but the the verses, well, no, I guess that's not true. The last verse is pretty pretty nice um, for this, but this is written about John Prine as a child, right, going back to his his parents' uh, home homeland in, in Muhlenberg County, uh, in the Green River and Greenville, the county seat of Muhlenberg, and just sort of like explain why I love this song so much. Uh, well, being from Kentucky is, is sort of just one thing, but also the fact that he, he says Muhlenberg County, because the thing about Kentucky that a lot of people from other states, like maybe they're like this too, but um, in Kentucky, it's it's hardcore like this, is you don't tell people where you're from based on the town, because a lot of times people won't know. You'll tell them based on the county. Hmm. So I would meet, you know, when I got to the university of Kentucky when I was a freshman, I'd meet people and be like, Oh, where are you from? Where are you from? And if they weren't from out of state, they'd be like, Oh, I'm from Washington County or I'm from McGoffin County or whatever. And you knew sort of your County and the ones around it. So if they'd be like, someone said, Oh, I'm from McGoffin County. You'd be like, Oh, well, I'm from Johnson County. And you'd kind of <laughs> know each other and uh, that sort of thing. And a part of that is like in, in Kentucky, there are 120 counties, which is, <laughs> A little bit of overkill, uh, but there's a lot of them. So the fact that he has that in there is just sort of a nice 
kind of, it, it's one of those things that rings true when I hear it of like, oh, this is someone that sort of gets it. Yeah, I, I remember several years ago I was working uh, in an industrial setting and we had a customer from, I saw on this paperwork, he was from, uh, his business was in Muhlenberg County. And I said, like the John Prine song? And he said, oh yeah, exactly like the John <laughs> oh, Prine song. Yeah. Like he, he, he knew the John Prine song. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think... Uh, uh, from what I've heard, I'm not super familiar, but uh, more recently, Muhlenberg County has gi- been given the unfortunate nickname of Methenburg County. Ah. So, so take that for what you will. Uh, yeah, I'm sure trouble, it's still trouble in paradise. Yeah. But, you know, that's that just puts it on a long list of places struggling with things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, uh, you know, comes from struggling with other things like economic depression and lack of sure. hope. Sure. Absolutely. Um, it's, it seems like, uh, this song is mostly, um, problematizing capital P progress. Uh, oh, yeah. and as, especially that last verse, uh, when I die, let my ashes float down the green river, let my soul roll on up to the Rochester dam I'll be halfway to heaven with paradise waiting just five miles away from wherever I am. So it's this sort of insatiable craving for, for paradise, you know, and no matter what we do, no matter what sort of progress we make, we're always, as he says, five miles away from, you know, from, from the good place. And the, the verse before that, um, setting that up where he's talking about the, he gets into the coal company, right? And the, he talks about Mr. Peabody, that's Peabody coal, which is this, you know, huge coal. Well, not so huge anymore because coal's dying, but a huge coal company. Um, but in that verse, you know, it says they, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken. Then they wrote it all down as the progress of man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Showing sort of what, what's lost in this kind of, idyllic boyhood you know paradise both literally and figuratively um being literally you know dug up and carted away it's it's pretty it's pretty powerful and that's why the song has sort of been endeared to so many people from you know kentucky west virginia anywhere where they mine coal or they have some sort of extractive industry this is kind of a big you know look at look at what you're doing sort of song Yeah, I was just sort of looking over the lyrics, and I noticed in the in the third verse, or I'm sorry, the second verse, he says, "Where the air smelled like snakes, we'd shoot with our pistols, but yeah. empty pop bottles was all we would kill." I think you've got to take seriously any mention of snakes in a song called Paradise. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, something something going on there. In the I, fact I that really, he calls them pop bottles, pretty good. Empty pop bottles instead of, I don't know, soda cans or, I guess here we call them, we call everything uh, Coke cans. Yeah. And, you know, that's not an important linguistic distinction, but I grew up calling it pop. So when I hear that, I'm like, oh, nice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this packed with imagery. And, and like I was saying, I, I was trying to watch these live performances and I found one that was from not too many years ago 
that was John Prine and Sturgill Simpson playing this song. Yeah. And what was so great about that song is like Sturgill Simpson was clearly kind of, you know, geeking out because he's playing with John Prine. So, <laughs> so he didn't, he literally like was like, I'm your backup musician. So all he did was like, he would do a little, like a few runs on the guitar here and there, but then he sang back up on the chorus and he did it in a kind of almost like a bluegrass kind of way. Mm. So I highly recommend that performance. It's, it's very good. Yeah, I saw that, but I didn't, uh, I didn't click on it. I'll have to go back and watch that. It's a, it's a good one. Would you say it's say. pretty good? I'd say, <laughs> Yo, you slick son of a bitch. Yeah. So pretty good. And while we're talking about performances of it, that of uh, these songs, have you seen uh, the Connor Oberst cover of Pretty Good? Yes. The live one? Yes, I have. How it, It's funny yeah. because I was looking at performances and, I, you know, the Connor Oberst one was like the fifth or sixth one down. And I was like, I'll come back to that later. And then I was listening to, to John Prine do Pretty Good. And I was like, wow, this sounds this. I, I mean this in the, the sort of inverse of the way I'm going to say it. I'm like, this sounds like a Connor Oberst song. And that's because Connor Oberst is, you know influenced by john prine but it's it does right. sound like when you listen to uh ruminations it sounds like something that would have been on the era on uh, salutations one of the two it sounds like something that would have been on one of those albums by connor obers yeah yeah and, and definitely i would say salutations because because it's bigger you know mm-hmm. it's got a bigger sound to it and it's electric uh, but uh what we were saying earlier about kind of the packaging John Prine comes in. It's, it's almost like, it's almost like, uh, John Prine is this, you know, uh, packaged like a country music star, but the, but the themes and the angst is very like Connor Oberst, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes sense that he covered that he loves John Prine and he, and he covers him frequently. Um, but, but Connor Oberst has that sort of overt, angst you know all his angsty songs sound angsty they do not sound pretty because i mean he just and that's not a criticism that's who he is you know his voice is like the embodiment of angst um so it's it's like it's like connor oberst is like the the heart of john prine um but then i don't know somebody like uh i can't think of like a traditional like woody guthrie or something is like the sound of john prine um it's it's like it's like willie nelson meets connor oberst is who john prine is <laughs> i like it so uh, pretty good is pretty good and it's a thing that that john prine has that we've sort of been i don't know if we've said it this way but we've basically been saying it he takes and this is kind of a Raymond Carver thing too. He takes the mundane and makes it like deeply meaningful or makes us think about it in a way that we've never thought about it before. Uh, things that are sort of like common sense or, or quote unquote, go without saying things like that. And, and sort mm-hmm. of, you know, twist them, twist them and turns them until we're like, well, I've never really seen it that way. And here he does it with this sort of uh, casual greeting of, uh, Oh, how, how are things going? Uh, pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. Can't complain. Not bad. Can't complain. 
but actually yeah, everything uh, is just about the same and uh, that's where it sort of you know that that's the the big sort of poetic turn that he has in the song yeah i was reading uh i was very curious what the verse about yeah uh, molly went to arkansas and got raped by dobbin's dog yeah that's a weird uh, one so, yeah, it's very strange. And apparently there was like a, a protest during one of his performance of this song many, many years ago in the 70s uh, because it seemed to make light of rape in some way. Uh, and from what I've read, it, I, I couldn't find like a super credible seeming source. But the story I heard was that it's literally about a dog. Um like his, uh, he was like camping somewhere and like this guy named Dobbin let his dog loose and it went and impregnated, uh, this dog named Molly. And it's like literally about a dog. Um, but it still begs the question like, okay, well, why did he include it? Like, what is its relevance to the larger, you know, themes of the song? Um, this one, this one sort of baffles me a little bit. Well, I mean, the way I was kind of interpreting it, and you know, perhaps I'm wrong, um, but it's that that part at the end, right? Of actually, all them dogs is just about the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking, like, maybe he's making some point about men in general. That's kind of where my mind goes. But, so this sort of crass, this sort of crass uh, uh, expression of. Uh, you know, you can't call it romance. I don't know what you call that. Uh, procreation is kind of emblematic of a lot of different, you know, uh, of most relationships. I don't know. Um, food for thought. Yeah. It's definitely something that sticks out because when you hear it, you're like, what? Yeah. Just the use of the use of the word rape is sort of, but when you think about it being actually two dogs, then it, it makes sense, right? Like, consensual sex is not very much a thing in the, the animal kingdom. Um, when you consider it, like, I guess there's mating rituals and things, but a lot of times it's not like, you know, a relationship between human beings. I'm going to shut up now before I get (laughs) into like weird territory. No, I don't think dog sex is ever consensual. Yeah, and that's but that's could, pretty much um, what I mean. I just, just decided to say it in a drawn out and way that kind of <laughs> painted me into a corner. Um so so yeah, and then um anyway, um I was gonna make a point about another song later, but I'll just save it for then. Um Okay. The the last verse, especially interesting, that's where he gets kind of cosmological. And he's talking mm-hmm. about all of them Buddha hanging out. And there's an Arabian rabbi, which is a nice combination of things that people don't usually think of going together. And he's feeding Quaker oats to a priest, <laughs> <laughs> which is such a good like. The, the little... I heard I heard Allah and Buddha were singing at the Savior's feast, and up in the sky, an Arabian rabbi fed Quaker oats to a priest. Yeah, such a good like that. Just the use of Quaker oats is such a good kind of like double meaning thing of like Quakers, like the religious order, and then also like product placement in heaven, like that kind of thing. And Quaker oats are, you know, everyone knows Quaker oats. 
Yeah. And there's, uh, like you said, it, it does put it on this sort of cosmological thing. And again, this song is just kind of about boredom and, uh, malaise and, uh, it, it is, it's weird how many songs kind of take up this theme of, of, uh, I, I didn't know uninterestingness could be so interesting and entertaining, mm-hmm. um, or disinterestedness or something. Um, it's because you get to this idea of like that the song ends on everything is just about the same. Well, if everything's just about the same, well then what's, what's the purpose of living? Right. And so he then gives us these little like windows into these really unique little sort of super specific stories. And it's like, Oh, well it's in these little interactions kind of between people and, time spent thinking about life or, you know, being in love or whatever, that's sort of where the magic happens, you know, so to speak. Um, so, you know, how do you break out of that malaise or how do you get over this kind of boredom? It could be in just like realizing the sort of, you know, the, the interestingness of everyday life where you can. Yeah. 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 And, and I think another, sort of a tangent of that boredom that that comes through in this album is is maybe longing yeah and as as we get to the second half of the album we'll we'll get more into that especially with uh far from me and uh donald and lydia uh but yeah so i i I think that's definitely longing as part of the part of the boredom that he's that he's exploring yeah so I guess moving on to your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. Side two insert Side two. like record player uh, sound effect. Insert me getting up and walking across the room to flip the record. <laughs> uh, the first place I ever heard this song, um, cause I wasn't super familiar with it, but when I was a freshman in college, I had heard like angel for Montgomery and the big songs, but I wasn't familiar with this one. And in, uh, I took a class that was called a discovery seminar and they were about whatever topic that teacher happened to want to teach about. And mine wanted to teach about Vietnam because he had served and he, he took a, like students on a trip back to Vietnam in the summers and, and still sort of remained involved in that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it was Vietnam, the Vietnam war and like American culture type class. And part of that was we had to give a presentation on a anti-war song. Uh, the one that I got assigned was Masters of War by Bob Dylan. Um, cool. But another person had your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. And uh, you will listen to a lot of other stuff like Phil Ox was a person that we listened to. Um, but yeah, that's the first time I heard this song. And at the time I was like, oh, that's pretty good. And now I look at it and I'm like, this is an amazing song yeah he uh so as you mentioned earlier he used to be a mailman and i heard i saw a live version um on youtube where he's explaining uh they used as a mailman he would get reader's digests you know all the time and mailmen hated it because it made their delivery so bulky they had to carry around all these reader's digests and uh they started including these uh, flag decals, um, 
in in the Reader's Digest, and he just saw that as this sort of uh, complicity, you know, in the in the ideology perpetuating the war, and, um, and so wrote this song. And and again, this is another one that sort of just from the sound of it, it's sort of like Spanish pipe dream or illegal smile. It's kind of, kind of pleasing, kind of goofy sounding, but it is anything but goofy. Yeah. And it sort of gets back to what we were talking about before, where maybe people for a long time didn't think of Prine as a sort of a political singer songwriter, but what he's sort of railing against, not just here, but like in Sam Stone and other songs is not, it's not necessarily patriotism, but it's it's hollow patriotism. It's a sort of like just hollow, empty, bullshit, um, like life controlling patriotism that leads you into a war like Vietnam or like Iraq and Afghanistan or whatever the next one is, or leads you to believe that everyone should go back to work tomorrow, that sort of thing. Well, it's also this this patriotism that starts to infringe on morality, and I think he really speaks to that when he says Jesus don't like killing no matter what the reasons for. Uh, So you cannot, we've talked about this a hundred times in this podcast, you know, how, how uh, complicit Christianity is in in America. uh, At least many sects of Christianity are uh, with uh, death, uh, political deaths. Yeah, for sure. A lot of that goes hand in hand, right? It's like God and country almost. Um, yeah. You know, that's that was sort of my experience uh, growing up in, in middle school and high school after 9-11 of, of the things that go together are your faith and your love for your country. Well, almost all the time, those things are in conflict with one another. Um, unless and he, you, he, gives a, he gives a little ground. In some ways, if you if you want to interpret the, his use of the word anymore, you know, your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. It, it gives a little ground in that you might be able to say you might be able to think he's saying at one point America had the sort of moral uh, upper hand. And but that that is no longer the case, you know, post Vietnam. Yeah, which I, you know. I would argue that was never the case, but you could see like where that would become. Yeah, from. I would too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, it, and again, he's doing the thing that he's so good at where this song, even though it has a very serious, you know, subject matter, it's funny, right? He, uh, you know, I didn't mess around a, uh, a bit. I took him up on what he said and I stuck them stickers all over my car and one on my wife's forehead. That's funny. And then he dies yeah. because he has too many. He says, if you join the Christmas club, yeah. we'll give you 10 of them flags for free. Yeah, yeah. And then he has so many on his windshield that he crashes his car and dies. Right. Which is funny, but it's also like you will blind yourself, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with this sort of ideology and Preach. and die in some sort of meaningful way. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, you know, clever all around. It's a great, it's a great song about someone who takes up this kind of performative patriotism and is like, this is all I, this will get me through. This will literally save my soul. And then Mm -hmm. finds out that's not the case. Right. And that's why we get at the end and he's at the pearly gates and we get the last, the last chorus. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's literally like the template for a joke. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and, and I was thinking that too when we were talking about uh, pretty good, like that last uh, verse I heard Allah and Buddha were singing at the Savior's feast up in the sky in Arabian rabbi fed quick roasts to a priest. That to me, that sort of sounds like a joke. You know, there's always like a uh, a Christian, a a Jew, and a Muslim walk into a bar, sort of thing. Yeah. So it, it's like these are like really elaborate super thoughtful jokes. Yeah. I mean, like any good joke, well, I don't know about any good joke, like most good jokes, there's kind of a kernel of truth to it. Right. And that's why it's yeah. funny. Um, yeah. so, so yeah, definitely. Um, I guess we can talk about far from me. I was, I was trying to think of a shitty segue. It's far, it's far from far, us to, to far know be what it all for these songs me to, <laughs> claim to know uh okay far from me i am not as familiar with this one uh it, like i've heard it you know a hundred times but i've just never really uh wrestled with this one like i have some of the other ones but 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 i do get a sense a strong sense of longing from this song yeah, I the in the live performance that I watched, he he gave a little bit of a storyteller kind of explanation beforehand, and said, you know, I wrote this song after a girl broke my heart, and he's like, that that's a pretty quick way to become a good songwriter is to have a girl break <laughs> your heart, and he said that he, this girl gave him back his ring that he had given her and said that it needed some work done on it, and he's like, well, and I believed her, and that's kind of, and then he goes into the song. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a pretty, to me, it seems like it's a pretty standard kind of heartbreak song, except it has that sort of thing you're talking about of uh, longing, and it's it's a unrequited kind of longing of the narrator of the song, and the, the woman in the song is just sort of already gone, kind of disinterested, detached. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes it a little bit unique, right? It's sort of a song about being left, um, but not in a way that's like, big and or or it's like having been left yeah but it's not like my woman done me wrong or my woman went and cheated or whatever it's my woman fell out of love with me yeah and and yeah like like you're saying he said in the introduction of it it's like uh, kind of having the humility to understand where that person is coming from like not thinking you're god's gift to all creation Mm -hmm. Um, but the acceptance of that is, is just good, (laughs) good fodder for a sad song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just that, that closing, whether the the last verse is so brilliant says, will will you still see me tomorrow? No, I got too much to do. Well, a question ain't really a question if you know the answer to (laughs) (laughs) it's such a good, it's such a good turn of phrase, you know, Yeah. of like, I already know you're going to say no, but you know, I have to ask anyway, because I'm holding out hope. Yeah. 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 There, you're, you're right. There's a, it, it is longing, but it's a, there's a, there's a certain pessimism to this song. Like, like even if she did want him, it's like, there's still sort of something wrong with him. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. There's, there's something to it. There's, and also that the end of that, the verse before that, 
says uh, she still laughs with me, but she waits just a second too long. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, just great, great songwriting. They're just, they're just slightly out of sync. He, It's sort of betraying her. Uh, yeah, like she's laughing, but she's not. it's not like a real laugh. It's like, ah, oh, yeah. ha, 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 cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, you know, so, you know, it's not, it, it, it's the subject matter is a little bit more personal as opposed to being, you know, more political or sort of yeah existential, but, but it's, it's a really well executed kind of heartbreak song. Yeah. Yeah. It is that sort of classic, classic, uh, you know, country heartbreak song, but it's just, like you said, a really good version of that. Yeah. Um, so anything you want to add about it? I don't think so. You know, that, that woman he talks about in the song, she sounds like she was a real angel. Possibly from Montgomery too. If I, if my sources are credible. Yeah. Montgomery just, uh, just down the road from where I'm at. Um, I, I was reading that he only used Montgomery because, uh, he liked, um, uh, why can't I think of his name? Hank Williams oh. <laughs> and Hank Williams had spent a lot of time in Montgomery. So he, that's why he picked Montgomery for the song, but you know, it works pretty well. Yeah. And this it's song, a, it's a very specific, uh, there's, there's a certain amount of credibility. I think that like you were talking about in that earlier song where he calls Muhlenberg County, you know, Muhlenberg County, uh, it just this this album. There's so many little signaling phrases like that that just like make it feel like this authentic. Uh, uh, it's like authentically rooted in in the South. Yeah, uh, and so this song has come up before on the show when we were watching Into the Wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have Kristen Stewart's character perform a cover of it. Um, and you know, I don't really know, like, it's just a great song. This is probably, if I had to guess, it's probably his most famous song. If I had to pick one. Maybe. Um, if I had to pick one that I think other people are familiar with. Maybe, maybe illegal smile or, or this one, uh, or Spanish pipe dream. I don't know. But, um, yeah, this this one definitely fits into the uh, boredom category, especially that last verse. How the hell can a person go to work in the morning and come home in the evening with nothing to say? I believe <laughs> that, that, that's a, a slight change. Like I said, I'm reading the lyrics off of the insert, like the liner notes from the record, from the vinyl record. Uh, but I believe he actually says, and come home in the evening and have nothing to say. Yeah. And that's what they have on, on genius. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just that the whole last verse is just such a you know, wrecking ball, right? Flies in the kitchen, right? I ain't done nothing since I woke up today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah. you know, talking about her husband, like you, you actually went out into the world and did something. You come home and you don't have anything to say about it. Like, how it can you be this boring? Me, it reminds me of a, a very uh, strange song by a band called The Low Anthem. Do you know them? I vaguely. I have yeah, vague yeah. memories of them. Uh, 
they've got a song called this goddamn house uh, <laughs> that's like, like about an old couple sitting you know at the breakfast table uh, it's a very different song but it, uh, this one just smacks of it for some reason to me yeah um yeah just it's just like a real simple song three verses and some choruses and he's out but paints this really kind of detailed picture of this lady who just feels like life's passed her by. Um, and just that, just some of his most poetic writing of dreams were lightning, thunder were desire. This old house would have burnt down a long time ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like that's and, brilliant. And you can see, she just has no, there's just nothing to do. There's nothing to give her life meaning. Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster of an old rodeo. Just give me one thing that I can hold on to. To believe in this living is a hard way to go. Um, yeah, there's just like, there's just no purpose. There's nothing to hang your hat on to give your life meaning. Um, it, it's kind of, it's sort of like coming out of the 50s and the 60s, you had the whole thing of like, the American dream, which is stupid because like <laughs> F Scott Fitzgerald blew that up like 50 years before that. 1925. Uh, yeah. And, and, but people, you're still very much buying into it. And now in the seventies, this is like this sort of attitude. And I keep saying malaise and I'm kind of making a reference to Jimmy Carter, right. Yeah. saying like the country f- has this malaise and that yeah. sort of, which was, indic- which was in uh 72, if I'm not mistaken. Th- oh no, that was, that was no, later. He was later. He was later on. Yeah, that was seventy nine. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, like that that sort of feeling of coming out of those two decades, and then in the seventies, it all kind of like comes crashing down. And in this album, you get that kind of attitude of like, I have everything that people told me I needed to be happy, but I'm not. So what what's wrong? <laughs> like, is it a problem with me? Is it a problem with the world? Is it that my husband won't tell me how his day went? Like, what's what's going on here? And in a way, it's a return to the theme of hello in there, where you see the the real living is done uh, in your youth in America. And then once you reach a certain age, it's like your life is just over. She says, uh, when I was a young girl, well, I had me a cowboy. He weren't much to look at, just a free rambling man. But that was a long, but that was a long time. And no matter how I try, the years just flow by like a broken down dam. Um, yeah. so any sort of real sort of, you know, vitality she had is, is long gone. Um, uh, and that, now she's just in her, in her later years and, uh, there's nothing to fulfill her. Wasn't that like, isn't that a line or it was like a throwaway joke in Kingpin when Roy comes out of his house and he asks the dude, how, how's life? And he's like taking too goddamn long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that, but it sounds like it for sure. Yeah. But that's, that's kind of what this, it's like kind of an encapsulation of this song is like people write songs about like the big, awesome stuff in life, like falling in love or like being on the run from the law or whatever. Um, and John Prine's like, no, I'm going to write about like what life is actually like. Yeah. And it's long. And a lot of the times it's boring and it's not what you thought it would be. And, and in this sort of like midlife uh, malaise and alienation, again, I think my my association with John Prine to Raymond Carver is not totally illogical. No, not at all. 
like Angel from Montgomery. I feel like if you gave Raymond Carver that song, he could like write a Raymond Carver story that, you know, that did not feel out of character, out of character telling the same story. Character. Character. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, a. I I think for sure. Right. Because it's the same kind of things we see in Raymond Carver. Right. Which is like, it's, it's very domestic. A lot of the songs in this are, are pretty domestic when you think about it. Um, Raymond Carver was very similar and kind of looking into those kinds of dramas and then going beyond just what it looks like from the outside to sort of what's happening within them. And again, Raymond Carver is, is certainly, uh, you know, depicting, uh, sometimes desperate, but almost always longing characters who are longing for escape from, you know, from their very American lives. Very American. I think that's a good way of describing it. I was looking at John Prine's Wikipedia page and I was interested to see what they put for genre. And it was like country folk. Just says John Prine. Yeah. This is like, it said country folk as like one thing. And then uh, Americana was like another big one. Yeah. And I think that's a, yeah, like he's a very American songwriter in, in every yeah. kind of way. Um, so yeah. Angel and, from and, and aware of himself as an American songwriter. Yeah, definitely. And like takes on that mantle and wears it really well. Yeah. Um, so the next song, uh, quiet man. And you were saying that you weren't super familiar, uh, with far from me quiet man. I'm like, not super duper familiar with you or I haven't really thought about it in any kind of yeah this is another one that you don't hear much about um that's that's very pleasing and is this one's another sort of toe tapper um with some some kind of silliness to it um but it's another one that I don't uh I haven't really wrestled with yeah and uh, I think a part of that is that it's it's really I don't want to say it's vague, but it's kind of, it's way more general than some of his other songs. You have a hard time getting like a concrete picture in your head. Whereas angel from Montgomery, you sort of get that vision of the kitchen with the flies. Um, in quiet man, it's it, the images are a little bit sort of more, more like a collage maybe as opposed to being like a, a solid image that you can look at. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying like giving you an impression as opposed to a story. Yeah. So like the verse of uh, last Monday night, I saw a fight between Wednesday and Thursday over Saturday night. Like that's, that, that's a cool, like turn, like very Prinean turn of phrase, but I don't really know what it's supposed to mean. It, the, the, I just read through the lyrics again. The impression I get is uh, on a very general level is about, feeling yourself outside of the mainstream and maybe like the quiet man is kind of this symbol of, of this person feeling himself outside of a sort of mainstream culture, uh, especially where he says in the first answer, and I'm running like crazy while you are asleep. Uh, so, so maybe even like him commenting on himself as a, as an artist, maybe I'm, I'm just kind of reaching here. But uh, that's that's another one I want to spend some more time with. 
Yeah, just singing like Quiet Man over the uh, music to Night Man. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but but yeah, I don't really. I, I'm just not. Interrupt the loud man. <laughs> um. So yeah, I'm not really sure what to really say about the song. I mean, I like the song. It's a perfectly fine song. It's just it doesn't stick in my mind as much as like it, out of all the songs. Th- this is probably the one that like. If one of them's got to go, I'd probably take this one off. Well, let's uh, let's go full Bob Seger here and turn the page to Donald and Lydia, one of my favorite tracks on the album. Yeah, it, and what I started to say earlier was about Donald and Lydia, and it was specifically about the first couple of verses, which are about Lydia. And I, I'm not the only person that's noticed this based on like a bunch of YouTube comments and other things that I've read. But this is going to be about fat shaming. It is. Yeah. And, and it's about how he uses the word fat very deliberately and it's not to be like, fat girl. Like it's not to make a joke. Right. It's a sort of, it's a sort of reflect how she is seen and how she feels like she's seen by other people around her. Right. It's meant to be to sort of amplify the loneliness that she feels. Right. Yeah, I mean, like we've said, this is a song about, you know, uh, most emphatically about longing and desire. And of course, uh, in in this American culture uh, in which uh, John Prine writes, there are, you know, standards that are going to relegate her to this sort of lonely position. Yeah. And the way that these characters are sketched out, like this is probably like the most detailed kind of character sketch we get is of Lydia. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of sort of have a, a good vision of, of like who she is as a character when we, we get into the first chorus and um, you know, then we, we get to know Donald a little bit. Um, and I don't know. It's just when you write about loneliness, this is such a interesting way to do it because it's like another kind of misconception about the song is like, Hey, he wrote a song about jacking off, which like he did, but people are sort of missing the deeper meaning behind this. Right. And I think like, I want to say that you've brought this song up before when we were talking about Jarhead. Um, Really? Yeah. It makes sense because I, uh, I love, uh, I love this song very much, but there's a scene in Jarhead where, um, What's his face? Jake Gyllenhaal is in the bathroom Tony stall. Swafford. Yeah, he's in the he's in the the stall, and he, he's like trying to jerk off, but he he like can't because of the war. Well, um, and because he's he's done it so much. Yeah, uh, it's like and, part of his like hourly routine. Yeah. Um. So. So yeah, yeah, I think you've brought this up before because it's a kind of image of of, of loneliness and, and distance. And in the case of Donald, like in some of the other characters you get on the album, um, it's it's because of you know military service and kind of the intervention of the military in his life. Yeah, um, I, it's hard for me just because I'm such a Kubrick fan to think of. Uh, of a barracks latrine and not think of uh, full metal jacket. Um, so like when I think of 
<laughs> this sounds, when I think of Donald masturbating in the barracks latrine, I think of uh, you think of Vincent D'Onofrio with, with his Vincent head blown D'Onofrio, off uh, in Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, uh, but you know, back to the song. Really, I you you have these two verses introducing these two characters, both of whom are very lonely and experiencing deep lust and longing. Um, and, and this is why I love this song is because John Prine really understands who he is and, and the context he occupies. He sets this up to be a typical country song where, where there is catharsis. You've got these two lonely people and, and it's set up for them to, you know, <laughs> to fill each other's holes <laughs> And, uh, ah. and and that is not what happens, or or if it is, the, the, it's even more tragic and heartbreaking because you see that there really is no cure, uh, as Leonard Cohen says, there ain't no cure for love. Um, so yeah, I think it's and I think it's the latter. I think what he's saying is that there is really no. Um, no solution to this to this problem of longing because because really that longing is uh, that romantic longing is is a uh, a projection of a deeper sort of unconscious longing that that really doesn't have a form um, uh, you know there's no shape to it to to fill it so uh like I said, this is one of my favorites. I think it's extremely smart and extremely sad. For sure. I agree with everything that you said <laughs> and have very little to add. Um, yeah. This dreaming comes natural, right? Uh, yeah. Dream- it, it reminds me, it reminds me of the song, the lonesome friends of science, uh, or from his last album, the tree of forgiveness where uh, the choruses, the lonesome friends of science say, uh, this world will end most any day. Well, if it does, then that's okay, because I don't live there anyway. Uh, and, and I think you get these two characters sort of living in their own heads. Uh, and, and I think it, there's a line specifically about Donald where he says, strangers had forced him to live in his head. Um, so, so maybe there's, uh, maybe there's some sort of connection between those two songs, but, uh, it's like, uh, yeah. I, I always think of, uh, marching bands of Manhattan by death cab for cutie. It's the line is, it's true. What you said, I live like a hermit in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I don't know. I like songs that talk about the, the inner life. <laughs> yeah. The um, isolation of it. Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, this this is my big recommendation from the album. This uh, I just I love this one so much. Yep. And I was reading all these comments of people like when he gets to the line about Lydia being fat, like people in the crowd chuckle or whatever. And well, those people are missing the point. And like maybe by the end of the song, they come around and being like, "Oh, like this was heavier than I thought it would be." 
Yeah, and I think it's on both sides where it's like if you think that's funny, you're really you're missing the point. And if you think it's offensive, you're missing the point. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you either way, you're not uh seeing the context in in which Prime is using it. Yeah. So and that and that's the thing, right? Like Prime's my favorite word to describe his songwriting is wily. <laughs> He's a wily songwriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he's he's he is such a uh, a great songwriter and a respected songwriter to where you cannot uh, you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt when he uses the word fat. Uh, he does it with full knowledge of its connotations. He's too smart to. Uh, you know, to be caught up in something kind of crass like that. Yeah. And so you move out of this to, uh, six o'clock news, which I don't, I don't have a cute transition into because this is not a cute song. No, Uh, this is, this is one that I hadn't really wrestled with until earlier today. I was, I listened to this album front to back twice in two days. And, um, this one I paid attention to more, and this is a sad song. Yeah. Um, most certainly, right? And so you have, it, it, I don't know, I kind of don't even want to talk about it. It's so sad. Um, <laughs> but in from what I've seen, this was sort of, he's, Prine has sort of said, like, this is a kid based on a kid he knew growing up. Uh, and like maybe maybe that kid didn't you know end up killing himself um but it's it's a story that's unfortunately not completely foreign like you see this kind of thing pop up on like law and order or whatever i don't know if you remember this there was a a series of law and order svu episodes starring chris ludicrous bridges i don't i was never a big law and order fan I used to watch, like it would, it's always on TV. So like in undergrad, like my roommate would be watching and be like, oh, okay. And I'd sit down and like watch two or three episodes. Um, but it, that basically had the, this kind of storyline that doesn't like, that has no bearing on anything. It's just came to mind. So I wanted to share that. <laughs> um, but yeah, like a, a song about a kid who's raised by a woman who he thinks is his mother. Turns out it's his oldest sister. Finds out from a diary. Yeah. Um, it, which is, you know, it's it's very powerful, but it's not. Th- this is kind of John Prine at his least light. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the line? Um, the whole town saw Jimmy on the six o'clock news. His brains were on the sidewalk and blood was on his shoes. Uh, yeah. Nothing light about that. Yeah. And the style, the style matches it or like the tone of the song is not like upbeat or catchy or anything like that. It's just like sad. Yeah. And just like another little kitchen reference. God bless this kitchen said the knickknack shelf. Those little sort of uh, Americana kind of homely details that he always includes. And they always sort of like hit the mark. Yeah, yeah. And just down to like James Lewis. And then later on, he says, running, laughing back and forth, the kid with two first names. 
I didn't catch that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's it's just really it's a great you know again as always well constructed song. But and again, it just sort of makes me it makes my sort of head spin thinking about how you can release this as a debut album and you have these songs with this content and it's successful. Like that's amazing to me. Yeah. He, uh, 24, but writing like he was 220. If someone released this album today, they would be like a pitchfork darling, (laughs) but they probably wouldn't, you know, reach the kind of levels that he was able to. No, they certainly wouldn't have 15 studio album releases. You know, they would have to start touring right now and never stop. Yeah. Um, which now you can't tour, so joke's on you. Yeah. Mu- we just, music has been canceled. Yeah. Entertainment is canceled. We only have what we created up to this point. Luckily, Disney's <laughs> already Disney's already prepared for this situation. They've just been remaking the same shit for 15 years anyway. Yeah. When is the uh, conspiracy theory going to come out that Disney caused the coronavirus? Uh, and they, they released the Disney Plus app, you know, just before to uh, prepare people for, you know, how to cope with it. Every movie ever on this app, sit at home and watch. With your family, gather around the TV, never leave. <laughs> it's it's the opposite of uh Spanish pipe dream. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, that would be we should write a song called American Pipe Dream. Worship your TV. What the fuck is paper? <laughs> uh move to the city into an Stay apartment. Stay in your home. Yeah. Eat um, a lot of uh uh, microwave dinners or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so that brings us to the final track. Flashback blues. Uh, yeah, it, I, uh, I sort of looked over this one and as I was listening to it, I, I got a sense that this song was sort of about the meaninglessness of nostalgia or the, kind of uh, negative effects of giving in to nostalgia. Uh, Yeah. And that's sort of, uh, you know, we talk about, or I've talked about some through lines through the whole album and you have like the Vietnam war. We have like boringness and, and longing. Um, And another one of those is kind of memory and sort of the, the pitfalls of memory that, that sort of thing when you have this song and like angel from Montgomery and um, even going back to like far from me is sort of a, about a memory paradise is about memories. Right. Um, there's a lot of th- that kind of thing. And in this one, it's sort of like tries to encapsulate all that um, of, you know, sort of like you're saying the sort of not meaninglessness, but sort of like, unimportance of, of nostalgia. Yeah. The, uh, uh, yeah, it's important to not kind of get caught up in the past to, it will stifle your life. You know, if you Stlifle. take refuge in it, lifeful, um, the, the same way the, the character in angel from Montgomery is, you know, 
all like like we said, all her real living is done when she's young. Um, you know, she's sort of been stifled. Her life has come to a standstill, um, and you get you sort of get that impression in flashback blues. While window shopping through the past, I ran across a looking glass, reflecting moments remaining in a burned out life, in a burned out light. Tragic magic prayers of passion stay the same through changing fashions. They freeze my mind like water on a winter's night. Yep. Enough classic, said. Yeah, classic prime, right? Um, spent most of his youth out hobo cruising. Um, and all I got for proof is rocks in my pockets and dirt in my shoes. So goodbye non-believer don't you know that i hate to leave here so long babe i got the flashback blues photographs show the laughs recorded in between the bad times spoken spoken words dancing on a sinking ship cloudy skies and dead fruit flies waving goodbye with tears in my eyes at some point i'm i'm turning into matthew mcconaughey reading john Fry. well sure i made it but you know it was a hell of a trip and most of my youth out hobo cruising and all I got for proof is rocks in my pockets and dirt in my shoes and ten times what it grieves you that's how much more I hate to leave you so long babe I got the flashback blues <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird how much that fits <laughs> I could sit and listen to Matthew McConaughey read John Prine's entire catalog just imagine him like uh, reading that the line about the Korean War from Hello in there. Yeah, like all the pauses, the pregnant pauses in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, well, John Prine, fucking master songwriter, uh, gone at the hands of this cocksucking virus. I feel like I sort of undercut or maybe trivialized that statement with such a crass uh, adjective. That that was a very like, that was a very like M. Gustav kind of (laughs) statement. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and you keep seeing, unfortunately, like there are a lot of people are, are dying of this and you don't want to trivialize, you know, someone's, you know, grandfather who didn't happen to be John Prine, like their, their life is just as valuable, but we keep hearing about like older people, older celebrities die. And I think, I think John Prine is, is the first or at least like the biggest name we have so far of someone who has, has died of this. Maybe I'm forgetting someone. as As far as I can recall, he's certainly the, he's certainly the person that I heard about. Uh, that that affected me the most. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, I, that like you said, that I was sort of the guy singing that song uh, when Kobe Bryant died and the world freaked out. And it don't get me wrong, it's very sad, but it it, it also sort of illuminates this kind of celebrity worship, you know, that we have. Um, yeah. So I, I'm you know, maybe selfishly focusing on John Prine, but uh, I love John Prine's music, so I can't help it. I, I'm a big fan 
of songwriters where they're they're for one they're good at what they do but for two their writing is is a labor you know and you can sort of tell that they're like it's like a workman like approach almost that's why i like john prine and i like connor oberst and i like john darnielle from the mountain goats who's written you know, hundreds of songs and keeps going it's yeah just, i it, would add uh i would add josh ritter to that josh list. ritter yeah who's who just re- have you heard his newest album pretty good i have, I um, have not but he's a, he's an extremely uh sort of literary songwriter yeah and you know those are the songwriters that i always like gravitated toward and was always drawn to um and a part of it is that they they for a lot of them you have to be lucky enough to stick around for a while and you know john prine was someone who would, was a cancer survivor and like had to teach himself how to sing again and he has a very clear sort of demarcation in his career from how he sounded before that and how he sounded after because of the surgeries yeah. to his throat but he kept going and he just sort of instead of it being like oh now john prine doesn't sound like john prine anymore it's like now he sounds like a, a new and improved john prine who's doing you know, still pushing himself and doing different things. Um, so, you know, to, to see him survive all of that and sort of release all this music and write all these songs and then to die of this cocksucking virus, then it's just, you know, it's, it's a gut punch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it just feels so trivial. Like, you know, kind of the way there's all these conspiracy theories, uh, about JFK because everyone thought or, or, or it's like no one thought that this guy you know just some disgruntled individual could end the life of such a monumental figure as John F. Kennedy um, but of course he's just a man and, and of course another man with a gun can end the life of that man uh, but it, I, it, it sort of feels like that where it's like, you know, this, uh, this new thing, you know, this thing that hasn't really existed until 2020 comes along and takes the life of a man who's just, you know, been, been writing amazing songs for 50 years and it's just, and now he's gone. Uh, it's, it's just a bitter pill to swallow. And, you know, it's coming eventually, and he he wasn't a young man, right? But you have to think. 73, he, yeah. Yeah, you have to imagine he'd at least have a few more years, right? Yeah. He would definitely yeah. release another album as long as he could speak. I think he would have recorded another album. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he dies in Nashville, right, just down the road from you. Um, yeah, yeah. Survived by his wife, who also had it uh, and was able to, to kind of pull through. So that's, that's good at least. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, you know, kind of a somber episode. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but I, what I hope, and I heard, I heard Brandy Carlisle say this in her Colbert performance. And I, I want to repeat it. One good thing is that, you know, there's always a sort of extra amount of attention paid to an artist's work when they die. And, and and like she said, uh, because he he's died recently, there's going to be a lot of people who are introduced to John Prine and uh, get a lot of truth dropped on them very quickly. Uh, so, yeah, 
at, at that that at least will be a, uh, a positive that more people will be uh, introduced to John Prime because of his passing. Yeah, and if you wanna if you wanna be a songwriter of any note, then you should look at what he did, and you know maybe not emulate it, but take more than a few pointers from it. I would say even if you're like a poet, like you can learn a lot from the way he constructed things and put words together. Sure. So yeah, he'll, he'll be missed. Yeah. Um, so, uh, next week, uh, a return to form. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to do something that is, has been a big, a big hit mainly, well, partly because of quarantine and partly because it's, it's just bat shit, just like nanners crazy. Um, and, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, and also about how that has some sort of like unforeseen drawbacks that maybe people aren't considering. Uh, but we're going to be watching Tiger King. Um, I've already finished it. You said you're about halfway through it. Yeah, yeah, right, right, smack dab in the middle. Yeah. So there's. Uh, I hope you sort of get see what I was talking about about like there's. It's crazy, but there's also a lot of stuff to talk about related to like themes that we've mentioned on the show before. Oh yeah, I mean just just the whole nature culture divide is is you know at the center of this. Yeah. So yeah, Tiger King. We're going to be talking about the entire docu series next week. So buckle in, get your best mullet cut. Um, and weren't you Matt? Were you saying that there's a uh, an, yeah. another episode that's a new just episode been added, so. just added today we'll so that's fun that yeah um so uh happy easter hope everyone's doing well uh so he is risen he, he's he is risen um i remember uh when i was a kid my great aunt would have these catalogs and they were just of like novelty stuff and my favorite thing when we would visit her is to look through these catalogs at all the novelty t-shirts. And one that I always saw would be the Pillsbury Doughboy. And it said, he is risen. <laughs> <laughs> so every time somebody says that, I think of that. Um, that, is, that was excellent. I, I, uh, uh, was, I had an idea earlier today. I wanted, you know, like some people around here in the South, you know, will like decorate their houses for Easter and put signs out. And, uh, you know, sometimes the signs say he is risen. And I wonder what sort of reaction I would get if I did that. And I, you know, put this big sign with big crosses on, on either side. And all it said in like big bold letters was he is fucking risen. <laughs> or like, he is risen, but then you have one of those like tube guys whipping around. <laughs> <laughs> it's got, you got wacky inflatable tube Jesus. Like anyway, uh, happy it looks e like Gumby sort of floating around. Yeah. Anyway, ha yeah, ha I, happy I, Easter. I, I, I hope everyone spent quality time with their families. <laughs> I texted my brother uh, earlier and I, all it said was he is fucking risen. And he replied immediately. Uh, goddamn right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there's one one correct response to that. And <laughs> Sam nailed it. Um, okay, we're done. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family. 
After serving in the conflict overseas 